bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I am Erica, and I'm here with Faye Johnstone. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. So you are, like, obviously very involved locally in a lot of trans issues, a lot of LGBTQ issues. Um, You're very active in the community, and federally, too, I would say. So can you tell me a little bit about your org, wisdomtoaction.org? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I am the co-owner and uh, one of three co-owners and the executive director of Wisdom to Action. Uh, we are a, I like to call us a small but feisty consulting firm uh, with a social enterprise commitment. So we work with nonprofits, health and social services, and government and occasionally even the private sector uh, to do work around helping organizations strengthen their uh, policies, their procedures, help them execute projects, and then, of course, uh, advance inclusion for queer, trans, and otherwise marginalized communities. Uh, And we also spend some of our time helping Um, As part of that social enterprise angle, uh, helping advance good cause-based work uh, that is near and dear to the hearts of our co-owners and to the wonderful folks who work with us. So we sometimes get to yell at governments uh, and, uh, you know, try to mobilize folks in a good direction to deliver justice and equity for our communities. Well, speaking of government, the government, like I believe recently, as in, was either this year or last year? Um, the sort of gender diversity action plan. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. What, first of all, what does that action plan sort of encompass? Um, what are the goals? And, you know, how is this helping to, um, protect and, um, sort of grow? the queer community? Yeah, that's a great question. So maybe to like to start, I'll I'll just like put in context uh, this government and its approach to queer and trans issues, uh, which I think the action plan like says a lot about, if that makes sense. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, So, you know, as as all of us remember way back when, you know, Trudeau was elected on a mandate of like real change was the whole message. Uh, You know, we've got a feminist government. We've got a government that cares about queer and trans people. Uh, in sharp contrast to the like active hostility or, or passive like disgruntlement of the Harper era. And- well, oh, we'll get to that soon. Oh God, we will. <laughs> not, like- well, well, the conservative part. <laughs> yeah, the the newest variation of the same bullshit. Um, so you know when they when they were elected, there was a lot of hope, right? Like queer and trans communities had dealt with the government that wasn't willing to you know talk about us or work with us for years, uh, and we've got a sector that. Um, was really in its infancy, right? Like we've got all of these crises. We've got, you know, local organizations responding when a gay kid's kicked out of their home or when somebody is subjected to hate or harassment or just needs support accessing healthcare. And when this government was elected, there was a real hope that we'd see meaningful change, real change for queer and trans communities too. And this isn't to say they've done a lot of really good work, but I think over the last eight years, it's been, as I think this government is now well known for, a lot of big sparkly words and great photo ops, and then a lot of questions around where the follow through is. And so, you know, when I look at the last eight years, uh, I think there's a lot that they can be proud of and a lot that we should be proud of. We passed trans rights legislation, banned conversion therapy, apologized for the government firing queer and trans public servants and members of the Canadian Armed Forces and did some good things. Uh, but at the same time, through this whole almost decade, there's been a moment, there's been a question of, You know, when is it really going to shift into gear? Aside from these symbolic moments that have an impact, when are we going to see some real government leadership uh, to make sure that queer and trans people across Canada uh, are afforded the same opportunities uh, that everyone else is, that we can live in safe communities and that we can, you know, have these barriers that live around us finally begin to be peeled back. And they build this 
national 2SLGI plus action plan or federal 2SLGI plus action plan almost as the, the vehicle that would get us that real change. And it came out about a year ago. It came out in August 2022. Uh, and they spent months hyping this thing up. You know, they consulted with a lot of us, which was really great. Um, but they really build this as that it was going to be a vehicle for change. And I remember sitting in the room as the action plan itself was announced. And I remember first hearing the dollar value. You know, this is a government that can spend millions of dollars on oil subsidies, that can spend big chunks of money taking, you know, indigenous communities to courts, that can spend a lot of money uh, when it really wants to. And, and heard- black people. <laughs> and that is right. Like they, they have money when it's really convenient for them. And then when it's actual change, when it's things that marginalized communities need, uh, you know, there's suddenly not enough of us. So suddenly there's like a, a lot of fanfare and little follow through. And that was exactly what the 2SLGI plus action plan was to me. It was $100 million over five years. And that sounds great uh, to a lot of queer folks. That's like the biggest single investment in our communities in government history. And that's absolutely true. But when you look at the degree of need, if you look at the the promise that this government made of real change, you know, an action plan should be a dense document. Like I'm yeah. in a roadmap. It was like it was kind of thin. And I can just imagine the, the, the folks who had this bold idea in government, just the big red X's they would have had to draw through all of the ideas that came forward. And so in practice, we're left with an action plan that is better than no action plan, and that does have some really powerful pieces in it. It has a lot around supporting Indigenous, Two-Spirit, and Queer and Trans communities. It has some good pieces around shifting government process and internal practice to be more inclusive, and some good money for community. But it was a letdown, and you could feel it, even in the lead-up to the announcement, as we were made aware it was coming. There wasn't the tone of hope and optimism anymore. There was a this is going to be a beginning. And it was uh, like, we're going to give you this and then we'll build on. And I'm sitting here a year later and wondering, you know, when are we going to keep building on this? Because in community, it has felt like uh, deflation. It has felt like we're, we're, you know, disappointed in what we're seeing, uh, even as we're supposed to applaud this government for throwing some scraps our way. We're supposed to say thank you for a drop in the bucket of what our communities need and for a whole program that's going to throw a bit of money here and then, you know, the next year, throw it somewhere else. Their organizations don't actually build their capacity. They're stuck in a cycle of boom and bust. Well, yeah. And this is why I am a proponent of A-based funding for these organizations. For those who don't know, A-based funding would be like a continual type of funding for instead of project-based, which is limited, Um and usually that will cover operations costs. So I am, and then you could have B-based funding on top of that to do your projects. And that to me is a problem with how we approach any sort of community work, any sort of societal work, any sort of nonprofit work. It's, it's either funds or it's project-based which means there's no continuation. There is no, um, um, there are no roots that these policies and these projects can take hold of to provide that kind of support over and over, year over year, out over year. So, That's like, yeah. you know, we would never tolerate this approach for healthcare. We would never tolerate, we don't tolerate this approach for most of social service funding, right? And folks don't seem to realize, you know, 20 to 45% of those homeless kids are part of our communities. And they're going to our organizations before they go anywhere else because they know we're going to be good to them because they know that we understand their experience, that we can help them get access to the services and support they need. And so all too often, like cause-based or community-based work for any marginalized community is constructed as as a nice to have rather than recognizing that these are essential services that keep people alive, that unlock people's economic potential, and that actually, if resourced well, would result in cost savings through less kids living on the street, through less people in emergency rooms, 
we would have a more efficient and effective system if we just created the intervention that our communities need and trust. Can we talk about youth homelessness for a second? Hell yes. Because I want you to explain contextually how youth homelessness is connected to the LGBTQ community and um, how I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the two largest groups of youth who are homeless are Indigenous and queer. And And of course, intersections in between. Yeah. Yeah. And that is exactly it. So we know, I don't know the data as well in terms of like Indigenous rates of homelessness amongst the youth population, but I know, you know, when it comes to queer and trans kids, so it's, you know, 20 to 45%. And that's both our national number and one that we see um, in many cities that do survey data of the homeless youth population. Now, many of these kids are likely, you know, 14 or 15 year olds who came out at home and then had their families be unable or unwilling to accept them as who they are. And from there, these kids are now in a situation, and this is where it gets really, really heartbreaking, is these are kids who, you know, have their entire potential shifted um, because their families can't accept them. And those families also don't have easy access to support to help make them prepared to welcome their trans or queer kid. Oh, that would be great support. And that is it. Like we we need parents to come along with us. We need supports. A parent should be able to get someone they can chat with. And none of this is about like you don't have to agree with everything that your kids saying to you. I don't agree with everything that my friends, my besties, or my family say to me. But to build that ability to coexist in a home together, to have some understanding, even as we respect difference, we need those kinds of supports because without them, that is how we have these kids on the street. And these kids are also less likely to access or to be safe accessing the homeless shelters that are available to them. You know, queer and trans kids get bullied or get mistreated by other residents in these shelters. They get mistreated by staff in these spaces, even as the staff are doing some good work to learn and skill up. Uh, So we see a population that is more likely to be kicked out of their home and then less likely to be able to be safe accessing the housing interventions that we do have in place which again is why they end up going to our organizations that have to do all they can to try to find these kids a safe bed. And again, aren't resourced to then help support that kid to get access to rent, uh, to OW, to get access to income supplements, to find the food bank, which we also know are not often safe places for queer and trans people. Uh, And we know food insecurity is a problem in our community. So all of this compounds to a whole population Uh, that has so much to offer this damn world, but is denied opportunity and denied access to the interventions they need time and time and time again. So here's the other thing. Um, If if you break down the $20 million a year, and this is, like I said, like you said, $100 million sounds like a lot of money. 20 million, but it's over five years. It's, 20 million a year think about i want people to think about the level of the housing crisis and why that money is going to disappear really quickly because a bigger component of that support is housing and health care and so i think just for that sort of equity lens the 20 million dollars isn't that big a deal yeah. So I'm assuming that that's that's your argument, that that's what you're saying. It's a drop in the bucket. And, you know, that money uh, is also, you know, the, the action plan had nothing substantive about addressing queer and trans homelessness. And we know that when, you know, government, other government departments do work on housing, they rarely think about queer and trans people beyond like a little note with an asterisk that says, oh, and this community is more likely to be homeless. It has nothing to do, it has next to no mention of economic development. It's not there to help queer and trans people get employed or get gainful employment or stable employment. And it also doesn't mention much about hate. And so it's like this whole of government action plan that is like a few pages thick with a tiny little amount of money and a whole lot of fanfare spread all about it. Um. So 2SLGBTQI+, is this... Is this exactly the um, acronym 
that is like the one to use first of all oh my favorite thing is so like and some of my own gays will come or or is this like government speak so i i like so okay evolutions right so 70s we use like gay rights and gay liberation you evolved a few years later to like gays and lesbians and then we did the lgbt uh and then in america it was actually more glbt things get weird um, and then we in 20 in the 2020s and like the um, we started to there was a push in particular from indigenous, queer and trans and two spirit folks to put the two S at the front. Uh, and so that was a way of recognizing when we talk about queer and transness, it's often a white narrative and we need to center uh, and recognize the intersection of both race and gender and sexuality and indigeneity in that mix. And so the two S LGBTQIA plus is like the official and best acronym out there now. Uh, the only piece I would add to that is I think folks have every right to use the lingo that works for them. In community, I just call us the gays. And in many <laughs> media contexts, it's queer and trans people, simply yeah. because you can only say 2SLGI plus so many times in an interview or when talking to people before your mouth goes dry. And you just Yes. I am so glad that you cleared up the language. Thank you. Okay. Because... I use LGBTQ to like encompass and now I'm like, no, it should be 2S because yeah, two. And I'm guessing that the plus part of it is kind of like and encompasses the, the spectrum of gender diversity and not necessarily you have to be 2S, you have to be LGB. That's what I'm assuming. Yeah. And a lot to me, it's like the intent matters more than like, I don't care about what version of the acronym you use. I think these are small little conversations that are important to have. And putting the two S, to be clear, is very important at the front. Uh, but I, I think a lot of it is just like, communicate how you communicate. And we need language that the public can understand. And they get lost in the long acronym less than they get lost in like queer and trans people. So um, back to the safety and justice part, can you tell us a little bit about the... Um, <laughs> the intersection of queerness and policing. Oh, you know, it's and a trans. Yeah. History. You know, there's you know, when cops ignore serial killers targeting gay people in Toronto. Uh, there's, you know, that time that the federal public service used uh, a machine um, to try to detect gay people in the Canadian Armed Forces and in the RCMP. Uh, there is, have you not heard of this? No, you're going to need to explain this. Really? You not heard? Oh, my goodness. Oh, oh, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the machine. I always forget the name of it, but it's oh, yes, the fruit machine. Uh, so. So if we didn't have enough reasons to dislike uh, Carlton, also known as my alma mater, um, Carlton researchers developed the fruit machine, which was intended through a variety of mechanisms, I believe, including measuring pupil dilation to help you find some gay people so that they could fire them from the public service. And that went on till 1996. Wait, wait. How long did this go on for? I think it technically, I think it spans about 20 years. If I'm remembering my Michelle Douglas, who like is the the formerly like the, the kick-ass lesbian who was fired by the feds, who then sued them and took them to the Supreme Court twice. Um, she would come for me if I get the dates wrong, and I will. But it was a good 20 plus years of intentional seeking out and trying to fire gay folks and trans folks and queers. Until 1996? I believe that was indeed when it officially came to an end. That's horrific. Yep. And then we've got some like that's the like you've got the the fruit machine and the federal pur- like we call it the purge, right? It was the purge, like the LGBT purge. Uh, so you've got that piece. You've got the the most recent stuff where a secu- serial killer in Toronto was killing gay people and the cops in Toronto just like shrugged about it. Yeah. Uh, but then you've also got a history of cops raiding uh, queer establishments and, and bars and drag shows and et cetera places. Um, there is a long history in Canada, in North America and in much of the Western and around the globe of police engaging in violence and targeted persecution of queer and trans people. Uh, and that continues to this day where many queer and trans folks do not trust police, especially when you add on, you know, black queer and trans folks, indigenous queer and trans folks, etc. Um, and so that means that, you know, even as we have this like hate crime data about queer folks in Canada, um, it is such 
it is the tip of the iceberg because a you know many queer and trans people don't trust police um because of past interactions you don't say i know right shock it (laughs) can't imagine any other communities that might have tense relationships with uh you know police Hmm. (laughs) i'm just saying but that's it right and so you know for many of us, I think we, we don't trust police. And then a lot of the everyday violence that queer and trans people face uh, is so normal that we don't even think of it as like potentially a hate motivated incident anymore. I have so many friends who've been called slurs as they walk home or been had people yell at them or push them or shove them or harass them who never even imagined they would report to police because A, they don't think the police are going to do anything about it. B, they don't feel safe with police. And C, it's made so normal. It's such a common experience for many trans folks in particular that there's it just becomes a thing that we wouldn't bother because the act of bothering means you have to think more about how icky it is to just live and walk in this world as a trans person. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's amazing how those experiences become normalized in your mind just for survival. Yeah. You know, I, like this action plan came right before we saw like the sustained growth and anti 2 sli plus hate, right? So we, we knew it was starting uh, and we'd been warning about it and we were seeing it, um, but it really like it's escalated a lot since. Since uh, when though? Since I would say like in the past year. So since I, oh, oh, okay. right around like, I mean, so data shows a year over year increase going back since like 2016 with one year of exception, which I can't remember which. Uh, and so we've seen that increase year over year. Uh, but it's only in the past year that I think that we started to see, you know, mainstreaming of that hate. So we saw the the million man marches across the country. We saw, you know, two governments rolling back protections uh, that allowed trans kids the freedom to be themselves at school. It's in the last year that it's really scaled up. Uh, but I think one of my biggest disappointments in this action plan was the, the fact that it didn't think about hate. It didn't think about safety. It had very little substantive on those two issues in particular. Can you explain parental rights and how these policies um, affect queer and trans kids? Absolutely. So I think it's important to a like put some stuff in context, right? So first, we've got this rise in conspiracy and an emergent like far right movement that really does thrive. Uh, by trying to pit people like communities against one another uh, by using, you know, isolated examples or, you know, misinformation to try to turn the public against certain communities. And they do that when it comes to critical race theory, when it comes to anti-racism, when it comes to, you know, recognizing your legacy of colonialism. And the whole woke thing. Yeah, exactly. This is like far right culture war playbook 101. Exactly. Now, when it comes to this parental rights thing, I think the important thing to understand is that none of this is actually about parental rights. Uh, They're using this slogan that is meant to make you worried. It's meant to make you as a parent fear that there is some erosion of your role in raising your children. That is a misnomer. What we are talking about is governments that are restricting the freedom of trans kids to be themselves. So imagine if you're a 15-year-old trans kid and you're not yet ready or you're not safe to come out at home. And we often we'll come out to our friends and to our schools first because it's our way of figuring ourselves out and we share that information with our besties and our buddies. Now, in this context, and now in New Brunswick and in Saskatchewan, if you are under the age of 16, you need parental consent in order to change your name and pronouns at school. What that means is that kids are unable to be themselves in the classroom or in their schools without parental sign. Now, in many a situation, that's fine, right? Like uh, many of us have supportive parents. But if we get back to that statistic, 20 to 45 percent of homeless kids are queer and trans. Many of those kids are trans kids. If you're a trans kid who doesn't know how your parents feel about gay and trans people and you know you need their permission before you're allowed to come out of school, you might come out to them before you're ready. And in an extreme situation, that kid becomes homeless. And then we never hear from about that kid again. Because that kid doesn't have access to a platform. They don't have the ability to sound the alarm. They're busy trying to find a bed uh, to sleep in and trying to find food. Now, imagine as well the message that it sends when a whole government is saying, you know, there's something wrong with transness. So there's something bad about being trans. 
Imagine what that does to your everyday misogynist who's now a little bit more likely to pick on that kid with the blue hair or to bully that kid who uses a different name than they used to. And so we're talking about a government that is restricting the freedom for these kids to be themselves. And they're trying to use us as a wedge by taking advantage of the fact the public doesn't know much about trans people to this day. That most people do not have a trans friend or a trans sibling. We're a small part of the population. We're like less than 1%. And so they're yet the most vulnerable. Exactly. And what they're doing with the parental rights thing that I think is particularly heinous is that they're trying to take advantage of socially conservative families and faith-based communities. They're trying to pit Muslim students and Muslim families' rights to be themselves and to express their faith against the freedom of trans kids to be themselves at school. You know, whether you're a Muslim kid or a trans kid, I imagine both of those groups know what it's like to have teachers who make assumptions about who they are, who screw up and mispronounce their names, and to have your peers treat you differently because of who you are. And so what- nice. I I like that. Right? I, I like that connection. And that's it. What the far right is, so this is this is what we need to do in response to this. The far right is trying to pit two communities that are already subjected to enough discrimination and exclusion. They're trying to make us fight each other and to fuel division. And our response has to be to speak up for schools where every student has the freedom to be themselves, is treated with dignity and safe in their hallways. Because this is not about parental rights versus trans kids. This is not mar- Muslim parents versus trans communities. This is the far right trying to restrict the freedom of students to be themselves and trying to make us angry at one another so that they can pass their wildly unpopular fascist adjacent agendas into our houses of government and into our legislatures. So I want to pick up on a thread there. I believe, and I I feel like I saw this during Canada Day um last year and i think this year that the far right and the christian right like the evangelicals and stuff have made an unholy alliance and what i'm seeing is that it's no wonder they've chosen the trans community and the lgbtq community to pick on because A, trans people are the most vulnerable. And B, they can really disrupt. Think about a child's trajectory and how that just shifts downward, right? At every possible point because of the A, reaction of the parents, the supports around them, and basically, whether or not their parents are are going to let them continue to live at home. And then sometimes just living at home, even if you are allowed, quote unquote, to continue, I can only imagine the comments, the speculation, i.e., where were you today? You know? Or why are you going the, outside wearing that? Why do you go outside wearing that? Um that compounded must make it hell to live at home. So even if they're living, like leaving voluntarily, that is an environment for them that's just not sustainable. Exactly that. And one of the things like that I think we in like progressive circles forget a lot of the time or that we like, or that we don't realize. So I don't think it's a coincidence that the far right is coming for trans people right now. I think that they're seeing what's happening in America and they're seeing the effect it has had. So, for example, um, in America, we have eight in 10 LGBTQ Americans afraid for their safety. We have provincial. Eight in 10. Eight in 10. Eight oh, in wait, 10. but they had there was the Las Vegas shooting. Yes. And then there was the Orlando shooting. Yeah. So no effing wonder. And then we've got like, so under the guise of, you know, protecting the family or parental rights, we've got state legislatures banning books, banning, like interfering in the ability for healthcare providers to provide evidence-based and medically necessary healthcare. And so when I actually take a step back, uh, what I see as the attack on trans rights is the tip of the spear in this broader culture war agenda. I completely agree. Yes. 
So, for example, you know, like at their last convention, the Conservative Party of Canada passed a set of policies. One of those used the language of bodily autonomy around vaccines. It's like individuals deserve, you know, choice in what we take into our bodies. And it was like an anti-vaccine mandate. So Taken they said, from the abort, the the pro-choice movement. Yeah. So they use the language of bodily autonomy there. And it's like, OK, wild, but OK. And then in another motion passed that same day, they did, they voted to, to criminalize physicians so that they would not be able to provide gender affirming care to transgender youth. And so you can see there's a hypocrisy there. But my take on this is that what they're trying to do, if they can set a precedent of interfering in health care that social conservatives disagree with, which kind of health care do you think they're going to come next Come for next, Erica? Where do you think they're going to go after they stop the trans people from accessing our health care? Women. It is reproductive rights and anti-abortion, baby. And I mm-hmm. have on, I don't, I have it off the record that the Campaign Life Coalition, instead of pushing pro-life bullshit at the last convention, they put their time and effort into pushing a ban on gender-affirming care because they know that if they can normalize government interfering in the ability of a physician to provide that care that young people need, they set the stage and make it all that much easier to normalize doing the same when it comes to accessing sexual and reproductive health services. All of the anti-woke stuff, all of the anti-trans stuff, it is very much about restricting, like rolling back progress, not just on the gay stuff, but on rights for women, on equality for women, on acceptance of an anti-racism effort. It's like it is all of that, because even as they use the language of freedom, it's freedom for those that they like, and restrictions on that freedom for those they disagree with or whom they perceive with hostility. So Saskatchewan and New Brunswick recently introduced policies that will require parental consent for children under 16 to change their name or pronouns and uh, requiring the schools to inform the parents. Um, and other provinces are considering doing the same. Now, as I recall, Saskatchewan used the notwithstanding clause to pass this. Am I correct? Yes, indeed. I would also like to point out that Saskatchewan, of all the 10 provinces, has the highest rate of domestic violence. And so I'm just saying that there's a connection there. Just the thought. You know, I, I I grew up, like, my dad voted for Harper way back when. I grew up in small, I, he's forgiven, I, he's apologized, it's okay. Um, but I grew up in small towns, right? Can like, I just I, say that you and your dad are so cute? So I saw a picture of you and your dad on on Twitter, and I, I had to take a moment and just, oh, you know what I mean? My dad so is shout out to Faye's dad. Oh, so but like I like I, I grew up in small towns, right? Like I I was a hockey jock in another life. Like I and I heard a lot and about the fact that conservatives are meant to govern uh, with care. They're intentional about protecting freedoms. They don't want government overreach. And then what I saw in Saskatchewan and in New Brunswick is the opposite of everything conservatives should ever be proud of. You know they took a non-existent problem. In both provinces, there's no evidence that the existing process, which allowed kids the freedom to be themselves, there's no evidence that there was any issue in either of those provinces. So you've got one piece. There's no problem that they have to deal with at all. And then second, you know, they could have consulted with anybody, with parents, with young people, with experts, to figure out how do we make sure that schools are good and safe for everyone. Instead of doing any of that, they found a slogan and they just steamrolled. And in Saskatchewan, they had to develop themselves a legal shield, so overriding, invoking the notwithstanding clause, because a judge found, and I quote, that their policy would cause irreparable harm to vulnerable children. So a court literally was like, you're going to hurt people? Please, God, don't do this. And the government's response was, watch me, and I'm going to do an unprecedented thing, and I'm going to restrict the rights of children. Like, this is literally... Anyone who cares about the children's rights, anyone who cares about freedoms and rights and freedoms writ large should be appalled by what conservative premiers are doing. And they're doing it because 
Uh, they're desperate and they're trying to distract and sow anger because it helps them win or retain power. I noticed that in America, this all started in a real way with school boards. Can you explain how they kind of came to the conclusion that they should infiltrate school boards? These are the parental rights people, the libs of TikTok people. Um, So can you explain how that kind of works? Absolutely. You know, so in a good way, we have few, unlike America, we have few explicit raging homophobes and transphobes in federal and provincial legislatures. Like they're they're there, um, but even the ones that are there are a little bit like they're a little bit quiet and subtle about it. So yeah. like they pretend that they oppose banning conversion therapy because it's you know freedom of expression when really they just want to make sure that gay kids are still subjected to invasive, traumatic, and life altering interventions that have no right. basis and hurt people. And so like it's it's a politer Canadian version in its own way. And what they're trying to do by infiltrating local municipal and school board elections is they're recognizing that the public pays less attention on those levels. And that if they can bring people into power in those spaces, they can pass policies that actually more immediately and more directly restrict the rights and freedoms of certain students. And so they're coming for school boards because they hope that they can set a precedent of school boards introducing you know, horrendous and discriminatory policies And that by being an elected school board trustee, they'll be able to allege some degree of credibility, which positions them well for a few years later when they run for the next level of office. So tell us about Pierre Poiliev and um, his relationship to this issue. Oh, that's a, oh, so, you know, Pierre Poiliev, you go back a couple decades, he was not a friend of gay people. Right. Like he voted against marriage equality. He's since like said he, you know, it worked out, uh, but he voted against marriage equality. And, you know, so that's that's a baseline. And we know like he has a reputation, right? Like it worked out. Right. It was like, you know, I guess I guess now the gays can have their rights. It's fine. Yep. It was it was just a good time. So so he voted against marriage equality. And for a long time, like he was like he has social conservative roots. And, and he had so at a time where, you know, social conservatives had even more power than they do today within the conservative party. And so I would imagine part of that was his actual values. And part of him was him being a, a lifelong politician who wants to go wherever he can gain some power and influence. And you'll say what he needs to do to do that. And so that's that's who we're talking about here. And we're also talking about the guy who used misogynistic tags in his YouTube videos the guy who's taken pictures with far right, you know, extremists, the guy who supported truckers, even as they harass residents of our city. And so all, all of that is the real Pierre Polyev, the man who's willing to play with the fire of far right extremism because he wants to channel that agenda. He wants to channel that rage into electoral success. He wants all of those extremists, all of those misogynists, racists and homophobes to be door knocking for him. And he wants them to be donating and he hopes that he can do a dance right now where he can use his like rageful, angry Trudeau is bad politics um, that appeals to an angry and hurting populace because a lot of us are struggling right now. Yeah. Not doing enough about it. But he's taking that anger. He's adding in the anger of the far right. And that together is what he's trying to channel to electoral success. And he is possibly able to do it. But it's the price that we're all going to pay when we get to a Canada where only certain voices are allowed in media, where efforts to advance equity are demonized, where social justice is turned into a bad word. He is pushing, he's playing with a fire that he can't control because these extremists are- I was was just about to say that, that when you dance with the devil, don't be surprised if you get burned. And like, it's like, he's going to owe these people when he gets elected, right? Like he's going to owe, like he's got- like the Campaign Life Coalition, he's got like Action for Canada, like he's got these groups that are, you know, that have a, a Venn diagram relationship with his party. Uh, and if he has to keep them happy, you know, over the last few months or a few weeks, he's been using the language of like, you know, 
parental rights and gender ideology. And he's playing into this, you know, this false narrative about what's happening in our schools. And again, like that's going to lead to more gay kids being bullied. That's going to lead uh, to the reentrenchment of misogyny because anyone who looks different than the world thinks a man or a woman is supposed to look, which by the way, includes Bush lesbians, includes like feminine dudes. It includes a whole range of people. They are going to be demonized and hurting. And that threatens all of the things that we as Canadians should care about. I love how you connected it to the greater sort of woman population, like all of us, not only not only cisgendered women are going to be affected, but of course, more directly, um, gender diverse people. Yeah. And like gay folks, like again, like in, if we look to America, you know, one of the policies these conservative passed at their convention was um, to basically say that trans women aren't women and shouldn't be allowed in women's spaces. What we see in America. Yes. Yes. Like butch women, like lesbians are being harassed and having cops called on them or assaulted in women's bathrooms because people think that they're trans. And so none of this is actually about trans people. It's about gender nonconformity. It's about sending a social message that if you look different, if you don't conform to social norms around gender, you have a right to be harassed, policed, and assaulted. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you... Now, from that Pierre Poiliev part of the conversation, I would love to talk about the convoy and to kind of check in with the convoy and see how the convoy is connected to this parental rights quote-unquote movement. This is the best. So, you know, COVID is still around. It's important to name that. Uh, but the, the public attention to COVID isn't what it was. And since we don't have mandates anymore, the same, like, stuff has changed. And so this whole, like, far-right conspiracy movement that emerged through COVID, well, they needed a new thing to be angry about. They needed a new way to keep people pissed and to channel that into Canadian politics. And so what they did is they very much just jumped all of those people from convoy conspiracy to anti-gay bullshit instead. When we saw these protests happening, you know, six months ago, in particular at drag story hours uh, in front of pre-organizations and all that hysteria in front of schools, that was being organized by the same folks who were organizing convoy rallies. It was amplified by the same networks uh, that were, you know, organizing and occupying our city. And so it is, it's the same people uh, because as you said before, like it, it's a big tent party of conspiracy, right? And they don't care what it is. They're just trying to find the new thing uh, that can pun- turn Canadians against science, against equity and against social justice. Absolutely. And one of the things I always said about the convoy is that they were very successful. Because they created networks and sort of um, this nexus of hate that can be channeled anywhere they want. And what was disturbing to me is how much convoy rhetoric I heard around Ottawa after the convoy. And that's why where I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Like we imagine like. Again, when when it comes to a lot of bigotry, and we do this for many communities, like we imagine that the racists are our like grandparent um, who just hasn't got with the time. And we do the same thing. It's like the homophobe's going to be our uncle uh, who just like doesn't understand gay people. Who's screwing up the family dinner. Yeah. Who's making it bad for everybody. But that's not like we do a disservice to the opposition when we think that they're just like bigots hanging out in basements because these folks like it is intentional. You know, they are trying to turn the entire population against equity, social justice and human rights. And they're doing it with brilliant comms. Like they have better comms in a lot of these contexts than left or progressive organizations do, largely because they can be less nuanced. Like, right. They can like lean into racist and homophobic tropes, whereas we have to be mindful to not be icky to ourselves and others and how we organize and so we, we do a disservice because they know what they're doing. You know, Action for Canada, um, the, the convoy organizers, Pierre Polyev, he knows what he's doing. Uh, he is trying to push an agenda, again, where it's freedom for some, not freedom for all, where it's justice for some, not justice for all, 
and where Canadians lose faith in our institutions. And I have I don't have much faith in our institutions, but I imagine that Me neither. better and stronger and that serve all of us. They want to turn those institutions uh, into agencies that restrict our freedom rather than allow us to live our best lives. And that's all of us. And I'm glad that you built that connection between what's happening in like with some of the most vulnerable people in our society and how our lack of support, our lack of moving the safety forward um, and the economic inclusion forward, uh, that's what left space for these for these elements to come together. And I truly think the pandemic like melt galvanized them. Would I be correct? Absolutely. Like, I think, again, like the pandemic was hell for everybody, right? Like it was a time of crisis. uh, And, you know, so many folks are still recovering from it. But it it it, it converged with, you know, what was happening with Trump in America. It converged with, um, you know, the the, the surgence, uh, the resurgence of like the far right. Uh, And they realized like they learned tactics through the convoy. Uh, that have brought them to a scale we we actually haven't seen before with new strategies that we haven't seen before either. Uh, and so that is like, it is an existential threat to everything progressive movements have fought for. Again, if you're a, a labor, if you're a part of a union, the invocation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms should be terrifying to you because they can use that to steamroll abort, or, uh, labor rights. Uh, if you're a feminist, you should be scared because they're trying to interfere in the ability of a doctor to provide medically necessary health care social conservatives don't agree with. If you believe in democracy and free speech, just look at what happens as soon as trans people get a platform in any sort of way and see the hate that's sent towards us and towards black journalists. Sorry, Erica. uh, And towards others. They're trying to force us out of public life. And, And so, again, this should be a concern to anyone who wants our country to be a place for all of us, not just for some of us. Speaking of the hate that you've endured... And um, I'm not going to make you go through all the elements for obvious reasons. I think we could talk about that off mic over over a drink or something. OK, so um, this is what I love about you being so local. I'm like, yes, Faye. Right. <laughs> OK, so tell us about tell us about the Hershey's chocolate bar um, during uh, International Women's Day this year. How you got there, how you got your platform, and then some of the positives about it, and yeah, some of the negatives. Oh, and was, and and oh. tell me what sort of precautions for safety and uh, that you've taken in the last uh, when you got more visible. Yeah. So this has been so. Oh, Hershey's. This feels like it was a decade ago. I feel like I've aged. I'm like I'm surprised when I don't have gray hair some days now. Um. So okay, the story broad strokes is in December, Hershey's popped into my inbox. I thought it was spam and almost deleted it. And they just like showed up and I was like, okay, cool. I Googled the the contact info and all that good stuff. And I think I just came across their radar because I've been doing like writing and appearances as a queer and trans person in the Canadian space. I don't actually know if someone sent them my way. They just like, they found me. They wanted, yeah. And so we did this like filming in Toronto uh, alongside four other young women Um, And it was just like a cool campaign to showcase some young folks doing cool things for International Women's Day. Uh, I was excited to be part of it because there aren't a lot of trans folks in the public eye. And my folks, my younger trans siblings, um, often, you know, keep themselves small because they uh, don't have possibility models to to, to strive towards. Or, um, yeah, they don't like they don't have much visibility and representation. And so I wanted to give that and bring that. And then uh, the ads went live and the world went on fire for like a month straight. Um, because I'm a trans person, um, my inclusion in an International Women's Day campaign uh, spawned an international boycott push uh, that was fueled by some of our favorite buddies. So, you know, Tucker Carlson did a segment. Fox News. I, I remember this. Mm-hmm. Oh, my favorite thing, I'd have a, like a little edited version. So I he, like uh, Tucker Carlson had his people go through my Instagram as if you're a far right neo-Nazi fascist little mm, you will do. Uh, and he found a quote of me or a post of me 
from like 2017 uh, where I called myself a proud slut. And so I have a little clip of him just saying, proud slut, proud slut, proud slut. And I just think that's a great time. Um, <laughs> but like, well, so- you survived longer than he did. I, that was my, oh, I had so much funding. Like, bye. <laughs> so to summarize, like what happened, right? So within, you know, 24 hours of the ad going live, uh, I had Fox News as big, you know, I had Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, Jordan Peterson, Rebel News, the True North Center, and a whole long list of others, including you know, Christian evangelical organizations in America, take issue with me. Uh, I received hundreds of, uh, of threats and hate mail. I had people dig into my own personal history. They found my old legal name. They found photos of me from before I came out as trans. They shared those as everywhere that they possibly could. They dead named you. Caricatures. They did indeed dead name me. Rebel News launched a whole petition a month later on an unrelated thing that was www.firefay.ca, where the first thing you saw on the website was them publishing my dead name. So there has been like, my life this year has been, oh, it's been a time. So um, can you explain just, I realized that we used a term that some people might not understand. So why don't you tell us what dead naming is? Because yeah. I know that went over some heads. Yeah. So dead, like many trans folks, when we come out, just about all of us, with some exceptions, we'll, we'll change our name. Uh, and it's just a, like that old name is not who we are anymore because we're not who they everyone thought we were. We're a different human. We're a different gender, but still doing cool things. And so that old name that we used to have is referred to as our dead name. It's called a dead name because it's meant to be like dead and buried and stay in our past. And it is often a name we don't have good associations with because it was like us living a life that wasn't as ourselves. And so the act of publishing a trans person's dead name uh, is entirely intended to make us feel shame and to make us uh, feel like like to make us scared and to make us uh, embarrassed uh, and to hurt us at the end of the day. And they loved doing that to me. Yes, it's very much um, a microaggression that people d- use to shame trans people is that they call them by their dead name intentionally to force them into that social conformity. And or to remain love, like yeah like they have power over us right like yeah i'm so jaded to it at this point but like you know when you know every time that the far right decides they have a new thing to be angry at me about whether it's like me wearing a cool t-shirt or like walk living in public life they will mob the responses the replies and the quote tweets on twitter with my dead name and with those same pictures or with pictures of me from before i came out so they just go at it because they take pleasure in trying to make us dislike ourselves yes Yes. Trust me, I've had the same experience. So I I relate. Okay. Oh, yeah. I relate. And so I like it was like overnight, like my entire world changed. Right. Like I I had somebody do uh, a a media analysis report uh, yesterday to see like how much impact did this have? And I believe this was just like it was at least one point seven billion media impressions associated with my name. And so when I say like there were like there are wicked like there are fake like biography articles about me where they like have details about who my family is and where I've lived and what jobs I've had. Uh, there are like hundreds of icky images out there about me uh, and like folks like I have had like people are obsessed about it. Like there are still folks who are tweeting being like like scrolling through my Twitter trying to find controversy. It is wild. Wow. But I again. You you are just you are experiencing the it though on a massive scale. That's more what it is. And that's like that's my concern. Like I was like, so I, I was a new homeowner. Like this is this is what I like what scared me was um I was a new homeowner when this all happened. I I bought my house just about a year ago. Uh and I posted on my Instagram uh with a picture of my new home. And I was terrified. And to this day, I don't know if, but like anyone, like when Tucker went through my, he directed people to my Instagram. Like he had it in his segment. He had my Instagram handle. And so I had to shut down all of my, like all of my family had to shut down all social media. And we were scared that somebody had pulled my address. And a reaction to this, Hershey's put security on me for six days straight, 24 seven. Like I woke up and there was a security guard in front of my house that drove me everywhere I went and accompanied me into every building for a week. Wow. 
Wow. Okay, I'm just going to take a moment and let that sink in. Like, wow. Okay. Okay. What's the silver lining? So the silver lining, I, I hope, is like again, my, my biggest worry in, in Canada and especially in progressive circles right now is that people don't understand that anti-trans hate is is part of that broader culture war and that they're fixating on it in a big way. And what I hope folks realize through what happened to me, because like I like this hasn't happened. Like it was it was a like big, shining, loud, like it was headlines around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope they're woke folks up. Uh, and the nice thing in this was like, because I do have a platform, I've been in the like feminist and queer movement in Canada for like a decade plus, um, you know, organizations across the country spoke out in support of me following what happened. So like Oxford, the Canadian Labor Congress, like organizations of all sorts spoke out in a big way. And that was really cool to see. But it also showed them something because mm. when they posted their statements, they then got mobbed as well. Yes. So I think like, I think I'm responsible for Oxfam Canada having the most like quote tweets and retweets of a post ever before because they mentioned me. And that led to them getting icky messages and emails and phone calls and all sorts of, sorts of things. And so my hope is that what happened to me will show some of those folks in our progressive circles, one, um, how fixated and how much time and resource the far right is putting into anti-trans heat. Two, how much they're using this to try to stomp on social justice and cause-based organizations writ large. Uh, and three, uh, that this is, again, an existential threat that spans way beyond just trans people, but is a threat to a healthy democracy and a just society. Absolutely. I want to, so I'm going to end off with this, okay? Um, I will say that the gay and trans community two-spirit, etc., uh, is one of the most tight-knit communities uh, that I've experienced. You want, we are all indeed each other's exes. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the joke, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scary, yeah. But wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about what that takes to build that community and to keep that community going and to actually have that community lobby government? Like, how do you get there? I think it's like, honestly, it's a thing that we're we're like, so we have we have an incredible community, right? Like in in cities across the country and towns, big and small, uh, you know, queer folks come together both to like to be with one another because we're not like we don't have ancestry roots, right? Like a gay person is not related to the other gay person. So we don't like we don't live in the same town, right? Like it's it's not it's not like that. Um, and so we, since we are a, like a, a spread out community, we have to find each other in order to find our people. And so we come together and when we, you know, this world is not good to gay folks of any sort, like gay guys are still getting harassed, butchers are getting treated, like the queers are not doing okay. And so we come together to support one another. And that's where all of our organizations came from is people trying to be with community and to support each other. And we also have a kick-ass culture, like drag race has given this world things that it desperately needed and that yes. gives a good time. Like straight ladies love drag and it is a great art form. Yes. First of all, I'm a big makeup fan. Okay, so that's one. I'm a big fashion fan. That's two. Okay, so I'm like, this was made for like, I feel like it's made for to bring in straight women. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it is like, it's just like it, like, I love drag because it's not about straight them. women, not centering yeah. straight women. But straight ladies can enjoy things too. People yeah. of all genders yeah. can have fun watching drag kings, queens, and performers do their thing. Mm -hmm. um, but to get back, like, so one of the worries I have right now is like our communities are incredibly good at caring for one another, at supporting each other, and we carve out space and create, you know, supports. Can I ask you this? Is this, does this spawn especially? from the AIDS epidemic in the yes, 80s. Like, yes, that's like, that that's like, how close knit yeah. because you the, you were outcast in one way, in another way you're being completely criminalized. Yeah. For AIDS. I remember Ronald Reagan. Mhm. Mm yes. Yes. Like in response like we already always been doing this cuz like straight people would kick us out of their spaces. Yeah. But we we always did it but it was like AIDS really 
when the rest of the world would not touch or care for queer people, uh, our communities came to bat. And in particular, actually, I like to name like, you know, HIV and AIDS was a, a, a disease that in particular targeted gay men uh, and trans folks and folks engaged in sex work. Uh, and a lot of the world, like even nurses would not touch folks who had HIV or AIDS. And the folks who came through uh, time and again were lesbian women. It was queer women who were there treating gay men. And that's why in Canada, you actually see the L often going before the G. It was a way of giving a nod to the lesbians who helped keep our communities alive. Yeah, it's always the women. It is indeed. And that is, yeah. So I think maybe to to carve off that last piece around like how we pressure and engage governments or create change, I think that's like we have incredibly close knit communities. Um, but I think this moment now is, is making it very clear to us that we don't have the advocacy infrastructure we did 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Are not as organized and yeah. are now up against the behemoth. And we don't have the advocacy organizations or the war chests that our opposition do. And that is what worries me right now and is why this. It worries me too. Like it we're going to get gun. Like we don't have the like. We don't have the resources and uh, the public is not aware of who we are. Like, I don't need everyone to know everything about trans people. I don't I don't care. Like, I, I could care less about your ability to name every gender. What is being lost right now is the fact that trans people are your friends, your family, your neighbors. They are your factory workers. They are your educators. They are your cashiers. Trans people are trying to pay our bills, are trying to live our lives and to be safe in our communities. And the public is losing sight of that. And far-right groups are attacking us, again, because we're a symbol, and they can use us as a symbol of what not to be, and that is the threat here. And so we are waking up to this. Um, I am spending every single moment of my time trying to help rally queer and trans communities and our allies in progressive spaces so that we can rise to the challenge of this moment. But my fear is it's going to get worse before it gets better, and we need ready because i want a world where politicians know better than to screw with queer people and yeah. that's the world we need we need queer power we need to be able to mobilize to hold governments accountable and we're getting ready for that uh, but this moment caught us off guard and we've had yeah. years where we weren't the targets of governments where we weren't the targets like we haven't seen a fight like this in 20 years the yeah. last time i would compare to this moment would have been the marriage equality fight it has been 20 years uh, since we had a battle like this. And so we need to shift into gear. Uh, but we also need our allies to back us up. Or it's- how, how can we support you? Because that's, that is going to be the last question I ask mm. you today. And it has been such a treat to have oh, you on. Next time there will be wine. Yes. Yes. We need to do this again because I want to bring more queer content into this mm. podcast because my whole, I hope that with this podcast, I can do some community building. So tell us what we can do as, I hate to use the word allies now because. Yeah, I hate, I hate, lingo's always going to fail us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can we support you? And, and, and our, and the queer people in our, in our communities, how can we do that? So I think the there's there's a few things. Um, one of the biggest is, you know, kitchen table conversations. Like, and what I mean by that is we need, you know, we live in our own little echo chambers in all of our communities. Instagram, like the algorithm, the algorithms fuel it. And when the environment is poisoned by disinformation and misinformation, an Instagram post isn't going to change someone's mind. And so we need to be talking with our neighbors. We don't need to go in and give them a lecture on what it means to be trans, but we need to come back to those principles that we all agree with. We all deserve the freedom to be ourselves. Uh, we are all just trying to live our lives and to raise our families. Um, but trans people and queer people deserve that same opportunity. And so we need folks who can be ambassadors, especially across different communities, and have these kinds of easy, like easy conversations. Like this isn't you yelling at a bigot. This is us chatting with our friends and our neighbors, our parents and our uncles. So that is like, Big chug number one. My ask for those who are in progressive movements who have access to resources and expertise. You know, my sector, we don't have many government relations professionals. We don't have 
campaigners. We don't have many comms professionals who do the public kind of fight. And that is what I'm feeling. And that is what I am giving all my time to is that public fight. And so if you have resources, if you have expertise, um, please offer it to queer and trans advocates and organizations um, and help mobilize your own networks and members as well. Because what this is about is more than just us, but we need your help because we are still the ones best positioned to meet this particular moment. And then we will build the infrastructure that we need across our movements because the feminists are worried about what the future holds. Anyone who cares about addressing racism is scared about Pierre Polyev. Like we've got this moment we need. We need to be ready. It just happens to have started with trans people. And so we can use this moment to be ready to meet it head on and to be ready in six months when they come for the next marginalized community next. Tell us your wisdom to action, like general email. Yeah, uh, it is info, I-N-F-O at wisdom, number two, action.org. And we would love to have folks pop into our inbox. Please write in to us, bad and bitchy. Oh, sorry, wrong email bad and be pod at gmail.com and also you can find us on at bad and bitchy on twitter and at bad and bitchy pod on instagram Faye, thank you for spending your time with us this was awesome i i, I have a feeling is mutual thank you for having me on and for a kick-ass convo oh it was kick-ass so we will see you next time okay Bye. Bye. My bitch is bad and bullshit.